Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm Andrea Miller, and my guest today is a woman with an impressive resume and list of accomplishments, Natasha Sistrunk-Robinson. In this episode, Natasha shares her journey as a young African-American girl from South Carolina, then on to the United States Naval Academy, then to her calling as a speaker, mentor, writer, and teacher. We talk about the hard times in her journey and how she handled being in spaces where sexism and racism were prevalent. As Natasha says in her book, A Sojourner's Truth, the truth is my faith, skin color, gender, and culture has significantly informed the way God calls me to respond, speak, and act in this world. I am human. I've suffered quite a bit of loss and have wrestled with the tensions and intersectionality of being both black and a woman. Listen in as Natasha shares her story. Natasha, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, I am just really honored to talk to you today. And before I introduce you and your impressive list of accomplishments and credentials, I just want to say how much I appreciate your book, A Sojourner's Truth, and how much it just spoke to me when I read it this summer. Um, One of the lines that you have in your book, you say about two convictions that you have. And one of them is that you said, we need to hear more stories that originate with and feature the voices and experiences of people of color. And that just spoke so loudly to me and convicted me as well. Cause I, with this podcast and wanting to share women's stories, it was just really put plainly to me, like I'm not doing a very good job of that. Mm-hmm. So um, I just appreciate your, truth-telling there and making me look at what what I'm doing and really I think you really helped me set the tone kind of for the second season of featuring more voices from women on the margins so thank you for that you're welcome thank you for listening <laughs> yes we have a lot to learn Natasha so <laughs> but let me get in before we dive into your story Let me tell uh, my listeners about you. You are an international speaker. You're a leadership consultant. You're a diversity and mentoring coach with nearly 20 years of leadership experience in the military, federal government, church, seminary, and the nonprofit sector. You're the author of three books. You're the founder and chairperson of the nonprofit Leadership Links. You're also the host of a podcast, and you're a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and Seminary School. You've served as a Marine Corps officer and as an employee of the Department of Homeland Security. So goodness, girl, I'm going to listen to you. (laughs) That's a lot. And it's just, um, I think it's just so cool in your book. The one I was referring to as a uh, Sojourner's Truth is you talk about your history and your upbringing and how you got to where you're at. So that's what we're going to dive in and talk about today. I'm ready. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you start. One of the things you say, though, you quote your, I'm just going to quote you again from your book. I highlighted so much of your book, by the way. <laughs> and you know what? I, I am going to so encourage folks to read it because I read it early last summer and then I reread it, skimmed through again for this podcast. I'm like, there is just so much wisdom here because you tie together not only your story, but history with the United States and then the Bible with Moses and Exodus. Like, it's just so good. Um, Mm. But one of the things you say starting off, you say, I'm an expert on being me, a black Christian woman from the South. So that's the story I'm telling. This is me using my power to write my way to freedom. Mm. So let's start off. You tell me your story, start starting at the beginning, kind of your formation that you talk about in the book, where you grew up, the family you were born into, all of that. Yeah, I was... uh born in the small town of Orangeburg, South Carolina. It's about 
45 minutes south of the state capital of Columbia. I'm the oldest of three children. Um, my biological father passed away when I was very young, and so my mother remarried. And the uh, guy that she married, who I called my father, who's still living, um, he raised us. And so at that time, it was just my sister and I. Um, and we were... Um, I would say a lower middle class or impoverished family, depending on what type of the year it was or what year. Right. It was. My dad was a roofing contractor by trade. And so um, he always worked and was never unemployed, never called in sick as far as I can recall. Um, but, you know, it's just not steady where you can work and not get paid or not get paid on time. And so that was just kind of reality of our life. Um, I remember uh, just coming from, uh, uh, not only a loving home, but a loving family um, on both sides, my mom and my dad's side of the family, and uh, just being surrounded by a lot of um, encouraging Black women, uh, just because my mom had um, one brother and, and three sisters, and then her mother had like three brothers, but like six sisters. There's a lot of them. And then my okay. dad's family is the same way. His He only had one brother, but like five sisters and then in the same way. So um, just always surrounded by uh, black women and didn't have the language for it then, but was very um, comforting. And, you know, just never questioned um, my, my beauty, my intellect, my talent, my worth, because it was just, I was just allowed to be in that space. Yeah. Really great. And so I um, remember in sixth grade, my, um, my parents told me that they wanted me to go to college or they thought I could go to college, that um, I was capable of it. They didn't have the money and I needed to figure out, you know, how I was going to pay for that. And so that kind of started my journey towards making decisions that would not only get me into college, but that could get me into college for free. Um, and so I was making very intentional choices then. Um, and so I grew in my leadership as a child because of those choices, because of those organizations, because of the sports um, that I was doing. Um, we were from a Christian family and that, um, you know, we, you know, did Bible study and, and vacation Bible school and, and choir rehearsal and, and church on Sundays. And so it wasn't just about the, um, the routine of it, but I did see that change happening in my mother's life, especially as we entered, as I entered high school. And so I just remember uh, I said to someone recently that I, when I went off to college to go to the Naval Academy, um, I had sense enough, I'd been close enough to Jesus, I have sense enough to know that he was the one to call on when I was going out mm -hmm. into a big world all alone. Mm -hmm. And this started my um, faith journey was really when I entered the Naval Academy um, preparatory school um, as a very tiny um african-american woman that was going far away from home to newport rhode island from south carolina and my parents weren't going with me and yeah so that's a huge huh, culture shock i'm sure uh -huh. Uh -huh. well and one of the things you say is which you just touched on this a little bit because of all the strong black women that you had in your life that growing up you loved everything about being a black girl not only uh -huh. um it wasn't until you left home that you realized that wasn't the norm in America, which I think is so profound. One, that you grew up like loving that. I mean, you were very good with your identity in that, but then when you got away, you weren't. So talk a little bit about that and your upbringing that really poured that into you and then why it was such a shift when you moved. 
Yeah, and I just want to be clear. It wasn't that when I left, I wasn't. Um, it was that there was a very visceral, systemic attack on my identity, but it yeah. never changed the way I saw myself. Okay. It was just hard to see and acknowledge. Um, and so um, for me, it was just really, you know, going to the Naval Academy and, you, you know, you having been... I would say like a big fish in a small pond, you know, that I was instilling and, and stellar and everything um, pretty much. And you go to a school and everyone is excelling and stellar. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we have this conversation about privilege. It was very clear to me that people had um, access to things that I didn't have. And so it would be something as simple as my loving to read from the time I was a child, that I would read anything that you would put in front of me, but getting to my English one-on-one, like a basic English class and having um, not read the classics, right? Yeah. Several of my classmates and peers, because they got a better public school ed- education or private school ed- education, had read these classics multiple times over. So the part of the time they read it in English 101 in college, it's review for them. Mm-hmm. And they can, they can discuss all the themes with confidence. And so the paper writing is not taking them forever either. And most of the time, this is my first time reading this stuff, you know, and so it was just really embarrassing for me. And then I, I really felt some anger of like, why didn't anyone tell me what to read or why was I not exposed in the same way? And so it was just, it was the, the, uh, the drastic realities of um, what it means to grow up in this country as a person of color with a different social economic um, condition than people who um, have, you know, different opportunities and networks um, than you do. And so that was very clear to me when I got to the Naval Academy. And is that, that's probably about the first time that started becoming so clear. And do you think that's when God started really stirring in your heart, like something's not right and um, I need to, we need a bridge here and I need to start fighting for this and working on this and this culture? Like, is that, do you think that's when it started God working in your heart with that? Yeah, I think that was certainly part of it. I think part of it was positive, right? And part of it was negative. And so the positive is, you know, you just learn how to speak up for yourself. So when people are saying stuff, it's just simply not true, right? They have no facts or receipts for it. You know, right. you know, my friends didn't get in because, you know, there was a quota to let a certain amount of Black people in. I mean, these are stuff that people say to you in class or in the hallway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you would just be able to speak up you know, for yourself, because you know your own story. They don't know your story. You know, they they haven't seen your grades or your transcript or your, you know, any of your accolades before that. So they don't know what they're talking about. They just going on the perception that they have a right to be there and you don't, right? And so Mm -hmm. confidence and positive in that, you know, I was able to speak confidently and clearly about that. But I think the negative side of it is, you know, um, and this is my first experience of being one of a few, pick your minority group, whether it's a one you know, person of color in a space and um, feeling like, feeling the weight of representation, right? That, yeah. uh, you know, however you show up, because these people, um, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have not had intimate relationships with people of color, um, that you are the people of color that they see aside from what, you know, is on entertainment. And so um, their interaction with you is going to drastically shape um, for the better words, how they communicate with other people of color. And so um, there was a weight uh, associated with that, 
that I realized now was not really our burden to bear, but it felt like a responsibility that we mm. had to bear in that time. Yeah, that's, I mean, and you also were feeling the weight too. During that time, is that when your mom passed away or was that after, was that during that time? She passed away my first semester of my sophomore year of college. Okay, so talk a little bit about that too. I mean, you've got a lot of heavy weights and burdens on you during this time in the Naval Academy. Not that being in the Naval Academy isn't enough in itself, but you have, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you have a lot of other things uh, like a wilderness that you're walking through here and talk a little bit about that time too. Yeah, I, um, I'm actually currently I'm, I'm a, a demon, a doctorate and ministry student at North Park Theological Seminary. I'm working on my research for my first paper right now about the narratives uh, associated with black women. Um, one of those narratives is that of the matriarch. Right. And so my mother was that in our family. She was the one that kind of held everyone together, you know, um, kind of the 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 um, bridge builder, the conflict resolver, the, the forgiving mm -hmm. one, you know, so she kind of, that's just how she showed up in the world for her family, but also for her friends and loved ones. And so when she passed away unexpectedly, uh, again, uh, it was almost like that mantle was, was placed on me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was uh, difficult because I had the reality of the responsibilities in my present, and that was the school, the sports, the whatever for the military uh, responsibilities. But then, you know, the reality is, you know, my, my family's struggling back at home. Yeah. And, um, you know, doing what I can, even emotional support, you know, um, to uh, be there emotionally um, and maybe spiritually, even though I wasn't there physically for um, family, I think was just, um, it was a lot. It was a lot of what I think of what I write about in the Sojourner's Truth is that that's a lot of uh, responsibility um, to pile on top of grief and the reality, just the stress of being a student at the Naval Academy. Right, because you also share that you had other, like that was a time of other deaths in your family. It wasn't just mm -hmm. your mom. It was a time right. of a lot of grief and sadness for you. So how do you think, like I read that and I'm like, oh my, I think I would just collapse. How did you mm -hmm. not collapse under that? Was it your faith that brought you up? Because really, I think that's mm -hmm. where a lot of your like, your characteristics of being a strong woman and a leader started to um, really emerge then. So tell me how you didn't mm -hmm. collapse. Yeah, um, so my mother was the third death that ended up uh, being a series of 11. So in a period wow. of 16 years, we lost 11 very close family members. So I'm talking, you know, grandparents, aunts, first cousins, you know, not distant people, like really close people. Um, and so uh, I think my faith was anchoring in that by God's grace, I didn't lose my mind. <laughs> yes. And it was also good that um, because of the way the school is set up, you do have such close um, community and proximity to people. So, so you know, these are people, they, they haven't had the grief that I've had, but we are all struggling through the same stuff, right? Yeah. And 
So, um, so the community was there, the deep, rich friendship and support was there um, of the faith community, but also the black community, like the black kids there, you know, we hung out together, you know, mm-hmm. for each other. we shared hearts and very deep things together. And so um, that was very, very helpful um, as well. And I think, you know, everyone, if we could be honest, have their vices. And so for me, um, I was just, you know, going back to work. I really didn't have time to grieve, Yeah. you know, because um, my mother passed away the first week, uh, maybe the second week of December. And I missed um, final exams, going to her funeral. I came back took final exams, went home for the holidays, and then you come back and all the requirements that you have, they're still there, mm-hmm. right? What's giving me time off? I can't take time off a of class or time, you know what I'm saying? It's not like right. I have And so you go back to work and I did that um, for a long time. So it was years later before I really um, started to grieve the devastation of her loss and really all of the losses that I experienced. That's a good point because you do share that later in the book that a therapist like years down the line starts asking you to dive back into that and how hard it is. So you were probably in like survival mode of getting through Mm -hmm. like and and filling that matriarchy role that was Mm -hmm. expected of you, I'm guessing. Um, So let's talk a little bit about in your book, which you have kind of you break it down into parts of formation, history, wilderness and so many profound things within it, but one is like the history you talk about that we all need to becoming more aware of and coming to terms with and the cultural consciousness and our family history and all of that. So can you share a little bit or a lot about that with you? Cause I think that's so impactful um, too with, with racism, with slavery, mm-hmm. with all of that and why it's important. I mean, there, I'm throwing a lot at you, I guess. I'm just, <laughs> um, so just speak into that. Cause I really, you, I want you to be the speak. Just, you have yeah. so much wisdom on this. So my, um, uh, so I think from my, what I was sharing from my hometown that, that people who haven't read the book yet, you know, I came from my hometown where there was uh, two historically black colleges and universities. So there was a private one, uh, Claflin University, and then a public one, South Carolina State University. And so you have all the culture of um, that that HP, that historically black college and university experience that I was raised up in, um, and and the educational um, excellence that you know, is expected and comes along with that. And so that was very, very important. But also my mother's generation, um, we experienced a massacre in our town. And it mm-hmm. basically was a result of um, black students at those uh, schools and at my high school actually protesting because they, even though um, the Civil Rights uh, Act, I, I, I forget the year of it, but, um, you know, had basically desegregated uh, the public establishments that the bowling alley in town was still segregated. And so um, it was the only bowling alley within a 20 mile radius of, of the town. And so they were basically doing a sit in um, to, to uh, for the, the, the privilege of using the bowling alley. And 
And long story short, um, it turned into a big, uh, what was nonviolent protest turned into a big uh, violent um, situation, 50 some people being injured uh, by police officers and guards, and then three black men, um, and I even hate to call them black men because they were really children, 17, 18 year old boys, um, mm -hmm. and murdered um, in that situation. And then there was also a woman that had been beaten by the cops and she was pregnant. She was a student at South Carolina State University. She was pregnant and a few days later um, lost her baby. And, and so I, I equate that atrocity to that uh, form of violence against this, uh, by the state as well. And so, um, you know, so I, I kind of come, I come from that, you know, people uh, fighting for their basic, Black people specifically fighting for their human dignity. Um, and I didn't realize even though I knew those stories, how deeply that impacted me and really uh, like nobody had to tell me to fight for justice and do what was right. It was just really a part of who I was. And so I think looking at the mega narrative of American history and culture, the thing I like to remind folks is that history is not always, it's often not actually um, reporting what actually happened. History is always reported from the perspective of the person who has the power to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, we really have to look at um, like who's the author of the story and um, their perspective and is it, and, and then to ask like, is that true? And so I think the main problem with our country, when you be specifically talking about racism or slavery or immigration or whatever, just pick your thing, that uh, whatever racist driven policy uh, we see and experience it, um, you know, even that the genocide of the indigenous people is, you know, a result of a certain narrative that has been told to us over and over that we accept that's true, um, but we don't have the whole story. And I don't think a lot of times that we had the whole story, we would even respond rightly because the story that we've been given is so ingrained in us that we wouldn't know what to do if we were required to give it up. That is so true. And I think so many white people don't know that. And I mean, really, it's only in the last couple of years that I've come to realize that more with homeschooling my daughters and seeing what the history books are saying. And mm -hmm. my oldest daughter, who's 17, is has an amazing history teacher at a class she goes to who has really brought so much of this to the forefront. And I mean, I have no idea. I have lived my whole mm -hmm. life just thinking, well, whatever narrative I'm reading in the history books or I've been taught is what it is. Yep. And there's so much more. And I think... That probably goes back to your statement of we need to hear more stories from people that are from that are African Americans. I'm sure that's where your passion for that comes from. Yeah, and I think like when I I just remember a couple of years ago when I went to Rwanda, um, the difference between that country and our country is that they they tell the truth, mm. and so for me. I just want people to be honest. Yeah. As, you know, as, as people of faith, as Christian people, as readers of the Bible, the Bible says that the truth will set us free. And if we believe that, then there should be no fear in our truth telling. And so um, when we've been led to believe that um, the story that we've given keeps us safe, mm -hmm. and we as people of color, 
have experienced it in such a violent way to know that there's no safety in it for us. But I think the deception among people in the majority group has been that this has been safe, a sort, some source of safety for them. Um, and so the, the fear comes of what happens if I have to let this go? And um, that's just not the perspective that we come from. And so I want to encourage um, people in a, in a dominant group to not just hear black people's stories, but to hear stories of people of color, period. And even as people who are Christians to really even be paying attention to stories um, from, from the international global landscape as well. Because when we look at a country like Rwanda, that can actually, like they are actually living for real, for real as a reconciled people. And it only started as because of their willingness to be truth tellers. And so we are not living as a reconciled people because we are insisting and holding on to the lie. That's so true. And you, you talk about, you say truth, the truth is we've always lived in a racial, racialized society. And I'm not sure that everyone would agree with that because I think some people think we're living in a post-racial society right now. I don't know how people could think that, but I think that's a narrative we still hear. And it's, it's so not true. And when you compare it with your trip to Rwanda, it's like, we think that we're the superior country and we've got it all figured out. You know, that's the irony I thought with that, like, oh, we, and we don't. And it's especially with our current political climate. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's just so, so important. Talk a little bit about, um, and this kind of goes into it, but just the cultural consciousness and what that is and what it's not. Well, um, I think that um, when we think about cultural competency, uh, I think there has to be a humility and a willingness to learn and a Mm -hmm. humility and a willingness to listen um, and a willingness and a humility to get close. Like proximity is very, very important. And so um, it is not the end to our, I mean, to end solution to our problems, but it's certainly a start, right? And so, I think a lot of people, like you said, they can claim ignorance because they don't, they haven't read other books, right? They haven't watched documentaries. They haven't, um, they don't have relationships that are diverse. Um, and when I say that, I mean racial and ethnic, but I also mean social economic class. So I think, yeah. you know, people of color, when, even when we've advanced um, academically or professionally, you know, we can look either side of our families and people on on a spectrum, on social economic spectrum. And so I'm never far far removed from a conversation about um, poverty or a conversation about housing or a a conversation about mass incarceration or uh, in the same way, I'm not far removed from conversations about wealth building or conversations about, you know, um, uh, advanced degrees, right? Because in my life and in my circle, I have people on the spectrum <laughs> and mm-hmm. that and so it makes me more aware and alert because these people are regularly speaking into my life um these are people that i know that i see as humans that i love and i am consciously aware about not what's just in natasha's best interest but how it's you know whatever is happening whether it be political education wise or whatever how is that impacting the people that i know and love and care about um and so i think that um for that cultural competency to happen that we have to see more work quite frankly on behalf of um 
white people really to to mm-hmm. gain knowledge and understanding um, other than what's been force fed to them. And this is not me asking this. This is me asking this for a general population. Why, why mm-hmm. should I care? When you say you, you know, more work needs to be done for white people, why should white people care? Which I know, but <laughs> again, you know, and I, because I think we can have such privilege and be like, it doesn't affect me. Why, why does that matter? And why, why can't she say that? So tell it, like, talk into that. You can be really honest, okay? <laughs> and I think it's a great question because I think, you know, some people really don't care, right? And I so think you're right. On who you're asking me to talk to, if, if these are people that are claiming to be Christian, then I would, um, I would ask, like, what does the Bible say? <laughs> yes about that you know and how does jesus show up for the marginalized and oppressed when he you know claimed his ministry and um and you know in luke chapter four and said bless are the peacemakers and bless are um those who are poor and blessed or um you know um people who are um blind that they could see like like these are physical and spiritual realities that those who are sick will be made will be healed and made whole that those who are incarcerated and, and in bondage whether that's spiritual bondage or physical bondage i.e jail or slavery or not getting paid a fair wage um that you will receive freedom and re- you know release from captivity and so like this is what what our savior has said and it was um it was a spiritual um thing it was a a a cultural social reality it was a political uh affront um and we see that just because of how he lived and we see that because of how they murdered him right and so um i think that when we are not addressing it what what i love about um the Lausanne Congress, you know, they said, you know, the importance of the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And what I found within, you know, I would say white evangelicalism is this individualized, you know, personal savior, just me and the Lord. And if I am, you know, doing my devotion in my quiet time and I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying every day and I'm taking care of my family and going to church on Sundays, I'm good. And my thing is, what happened to the whole, um, you can't love, you know, say you love me who you haven't seen when you don't love your brother that you see every day. You know, what happened to the love God and love your neighbor as yourself? Because these are things not just that Jesus taught, but he very much practiced, you know, greater right. as no one in this that he laid down his life for his friends. So if your salvation and your Christianity is just about your life being great here on earth, then I would submit that you missed the whole gospel. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And it's very easy when we sit at a position of privilege to just sit on the sidelines and think that's what it's about. And I think we have to hear truths like you just said, spoken into us, that it's not about that. And if we are Christ followers, we've got to get uncomfortable and pursue these issues and be uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I know from my own family, we just, we've recently started going to a church led by an African-American pastor. And it would be a lot easier just to stay in our little white community, but it's like, that's not what God wants. I mean, Mm. I really think he wants us having these multi-generational multicultural like experiences and being a representation for him and when i'm sitting there in that church i'm like this is what heaven looks like like we are represented Mm -hmm. by so many different colors and generations so i just think we're missing out on such a big part of the gospel and being 
God's image bearers and his mission if we're just sitting on the sidelines not getting involved with this. Um, so I have lots of questions for you. I'm trying to go through and, and, <laughs> and prioritize, but one of the questions I have for you, because I listened to you talk about, you know, your service to America and your passion for the church, and both of these have been places that have been so, the history has been so oppressive to African Americans. Mm -hmm. The Bible has been used as a weapon. The United States has endorsed slavery, was built upon slavery. How have you managed to be somebody that just wholeheartedly serves in these spaces? Yeah. Um, I think it's been the Lord's grace to me to set me on the path and journey um, so I can be heard in different spaces. Mm -hmm. So if I were out, let's go back to the narratives again. If I were out just talking about racism or racist structures, which I do, um, and I was doing it predominantly white spaces, which I do, and I have not had the background of service that I have, then it's easy to write me off as an angry black woman. And that's justification for not listening to what I have to say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've had people do that. Just a few weeks ago, I spoke at a university and someone was listening in live and I was listening to the playback and, you know, basically saying, well, she's clearly uneducated and doesn't have a great worldview. Oh, <laughs> kind of funny. Tasha. No, I'm glad I, you can laugh. Like, wow. Okay. Well, I can laugh because again, clearly it's not true, right? Okay. Yeah. Like a defense. Like I, 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 I lost no sleep over that. Right. Okay. It's okay. One of those things where, where again, the stuff we have to keep telling ourselves to perpetuate a lie, right? Mm -hmm. like, it's nothing to do with me, right? I haven't done yeah. anything wrong. I only spoke the truth, and so, um, but I, I believe that. Uh, because of the various background experiences that I've had, that God has prepared me to go into these different spaces, to share these um, hard truths sometimes, and to be heard by the people, as the Bible says, for those who have an ear to hear what it is the Spirit is saying to the church. Because it's never my desire when I go and speak um, anywhere for people just to uh, feel bad or whatever. Um, to me, I, I don't profit or benefit for that at all. I mean, it's just it's just not helpful, but I do um, want us to be people of integrity. And especially right. when I speak into a Christian space, it's like, let's not be hypocrites out here. Let's really be people who love unconditionally. Let's really be people who tell the truth. Let's really be people to understand that we have been saved by grace alone. And so I want to be um, as best I can by the grace of God, um, a person who speaks that, but also lives that way and then challenges the body of Christ to do the same. Yeah, and you talk about too, or I've heard you speak on different podcasts and your own podcast, just about the forgiveness that you've had to have one, the anger that you've had, but also the forgiveness to be mm -hmm. and that how that's been necessary to be an effective leader and voice. So can you talk just a little bit about that anger and forgiveness? I want to say that um, first, I think it's important, especially in light of some of the narratives that we've been given, You're that right. appropriate place for anger. 
Um, I, when we have, uh, when we say we're forgiving, we have to first acknowledge that a, a offense have been, has been made and that offense is so egregious, you know, that, um, you know, we even have to consider the act of forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that's important because when we have a community of people that have been systemically oppressed as black people have, and then to taught a narrative that, oh, well, they're so forgiving and look at that great forgiveness, whether it's in a courtroom after a murder, you understand what I'm saying? That this has happened on multiple occasions now. And then to make that where that becomes the requirement um, or saying, well, that's what the rest of y'all need to do. That is wrong. And I'm speaking against that because that is, that is completely wrong. And I don't think, I don't, it's not, that I don't think, um, that we don't see biblical model and examples of that. Now, okay. what Jesus has, has said, you know, because sin, what we need to acknowledge and racism is sin, that sin is so bad it's so horrendous that Jesus had to come to die and he came to die and offer forgiveness to us because of the acts of sin that were so bad and so in that same way because I've been given a gift of forgiveness that um and the power of the holy spirit that i can work towards forgiveness as well and i don't have um the posturing as a believer to withhold forgiveness for someone but that does not mean you get cheap forgiveness like you would get a cheap grace you understand yes i think that's very very important to acknowledge and so um that forgiveness has been you know, really staying close to God, really, you know, working out, um, I said, work out your own salvation, like working that out, you know, in community with very diverse friends, right? And, um, and mentors that are pretty diverse. Um, and I think it's, it's important too, that we, when we talk about and think about forgiveness of saying that, um, you know, um, Forgiveness doesn't always lead to reconciliation either. And um, I think that's important because you can forgive someone and not remain in a domestic relationship, you know, a, a relationship with domestic abuse, right? And um, and so I think because these grievances that we're talking about, they're systemic. And so in other words, you can forgive an individual, but the systems are still in place to violently abuse people of color. Right. And so you have to discern as a person of color uh, with wisdom about whether this is a place you're going to continue to work, for example, whether this is a church you're going to continue to fellowship in, right? Can you sit under the headship or leadership of that pastor or you, you understand what I'm saying? Right. Those are separate conversations. Doesn't mean that you don't forgive them, but that also doesn't require you to remain in unhealthy relationships with people who have no intent, it, people or structures that have no intent on, on loving you well or doing you good. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you clarified that and pointed that out because it's not just a blanket forgive and move forward as easy as that. There's a lot of different branches involved with that and boundaries. One of the things I did notice that you said about forgiveness, though, you said, I've learned that extending forgiveness requires that I remain close to white people. So what do you mm-hmm. tell me? Explain that one to me. I mean, I mm-hmm. think I know what you mean, but I just, I would love to hear just clarity on, on that aspect of it. 
Yeah, one, I remember, uh, uh, was it last summer? I, I mean, last, last winter, I think it was last winter. I went on a retreat with the women, actually, that I went to Rwanda with. Okay. One of the wise, the older, wiser women in the group, a mighty prayer warrior woman, she said to me, and we weren't talking about this specifically, but we were just having a conversation. And she said, you cannot um, effectively minister to people who you resent. Mm. And... Um, that's true. And uh, again, I, I, um, I like to also think about, and I quote him in the book, Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy. The mo- movie is coming about, out about the book here very soon. Yes, I- I'm so excited for that movie. Yeah, the book he, is amazing. Right. And he said, you know, in there, he said, you know, each of us is uh, be- better or bigger than the worst thing we've ever done. And I, I think if we are honest that we have all done this is what God's grace coming we've all done things that we're not um particularly excited about that we are so glad that God hasn't brought to to the light and publicly you know shamed us because of, you know what I'm saying so yeah. I understand that and so I don't I'm not interested I'm just not interested in um you know um guilting people or trying to cause people shame what I am interested in is um, connecting with a human, regardless of your race, ethnicity, or whatever, and especially if you're a believer, to say, how is God calling us up um, a little higher? And so Mm -hmm. I'm unwilling to um, stay in those relationships, um, then I cannot effectively minister in those relationships or those spaces. And everyone's not called to that. I want to be clear about that as well. But... um, the it, the Lord has, for whatever reason, orchestrated my path where that has been not all, but some of my work. That's good. And you're you're right that not every African-American is called to that or not all. But you as a leader, that is what the Lord has put on your heart, that in order to be most effective in your space, that that's something that he's he's made clear to you. Um, going back to talk just a little bit, because I would love just to hear how, how have you gotten to the point? I mean, you are such a woman of God that just has such a passion for the gospel and Jesus's mission in your life. How have you gotten to the point where, and maybe you never wrestled with it. Have you wrestled with the Bible being used as such a weapon? We dug in this a little bit when I said your service to the country, but as far as the Bible, I mean, it was used for so many years to justify slavery and Mm -hmm. so much oppression from it. But I also know in your book, you use Moses and Exodus. So talk a little bit about that journey with you. Well, I read the whole Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, I think it's important because, you know, not everybody reads the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. So if you don't read the whole Bible, then you don't have context for things. And and that's not mean that I don't understand, um, uh, that I understand everything because I don't. But but what I'm telling you is that because I read the whole Bible, I know there's enough in there that disturbs me on a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's cannibalism in there, you know, there's (laughs) there's race in there. I mean, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of disturbing stuff in the Bible. And so um, I, because I read the whole Bible, I know that, right? And so it's easy for me to look at how people can um, eisegete passages and texts to use them for their own benefit, especially when you have illiterate 
people, um, and I don't mean that in, in a in a um, condescending way, but just you know, really, people just don't know, right, um, about the historical context, the history of the time, um, um, how that book or genre book connects to the other books. Like these are sixty six individual books that have been compiled into one book. You understand? And so it's like um, there's a lot. I just think there's enough there to be uncomfortable about and to wrestle with. And I do struggle with it. And there are parts of it that are very disturbing to me. Um, you know, uh, um, oh boy, I can't remember his name. You know, just kill his daughter. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's just yes. Here. And so, um, but I say that um, just as an understanding that for some, I, I think there's there's two strong things happening. One, uh, the revelation of how depraved humanity has become as a result of sin um, and the reality that God um, in his grace is offering a redemptive story. Um, and that is what I have to hold on to. And if not for that, because I'm looking around, right, the people who make other choices and they don't look real good. Like it's working out for them. And so yeah. like, it's kind of like when, when, when the disciples started leaving Jesus after he said that he was going to um, be crucified. And then he looks at his, his, his kind of core group and said, you know, are y'all going to leave me too? You know, and Peter, you know, looks at him and said, Hey, like, where are we going to go? Like you alone have the, the, the uh, keys to eternal life. And so that's really where I am. I'm like 40 years old and I've looked around, I've surveyed the land, <laughs> right? Read some books and I don't think there's anywhere else to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how you're just talking about like looking and this is, I feel like this has been a theme of some of my last few conversations. Uh, like Carolyn Justice James was on last week and just talking that's about- I love her and it's just like we need to look at the, we need like you said read the whole bible we need to look at deconstruct parts of it what the patriarchal society of the time we cannot take this bible that was written 2000 years ago and apply it to the 21st century every part of it and mm -hmm. um i think that more people need to wrestle and deconstruct that when they're justifying oppression and marginalized people marginalizing people in that element of it so i'm I love hearing you once again talk about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, and we'll wrap up here shortly, but I want to talk about a couple of things. Um, one is your heart and your love for mentoring, being mentored, mentoring others. Can you speak a little bit into that? And you did a little bit with the women that mentored you in your life, but mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your passion for that. Um, and I know you have a nonprofit that is building mm -hmm. up leaders. So if you want to speak into a little bit to that, I'd love to hear it. I remind uh, Christian leaders in particular, whether it's a pastor or a lay person or a Bible study smoker leader, that you know, ministry is really about people. And I think especially when we get to the institution and structure of how we quote unquote do church, um, it's so easy to forget that because how we do church starts to be about other things, about budgets and programming and and how many butts we have in the seat. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so, um, um, you know, I, like we said, you know, we, we measure um, um, our 
um, effectiveness in ministry by American standards of budgets and and um, buildings and how many butts in the seat. And and my my passion for mentoring is really the passion I have for discipleship. Where as are we are we really um, investing in the lives of people in such a way that they are compelled by the power of the Holy Spirit to become followers of Jesus. And see, to me, that is a greater investment um, where success, not our success, but the success, success and glory that God gets is seeing people's lives transformed because that's a miraculous act. That's an act of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And so, um, for someone who's committed to mentoring and discipleship and, and teaching leaders how to do that well. And a leader, when I'm saying leaders, I'm talking about anyone with a, per, a in a position of influence. So you, as a parent, you are a leader, right? Um, and so I, I am very passionate about that because I think, again, unfortunately, it is not the norm. And I've been in a lot of different churches and denominations, and I'm telling you, it's not the norm. It's unfortunate that it's not norm. And so I am not really in my opinion, advocating for anything so radical. I'm just advocating for us to be the people that God has called us to be. And so um, that's why I've submitted to um, the mentorship and discipleship of, of other people at various parts of my journey to teach me various things. And that's why um, I've committed to be that um, for other people. And now um, through my nonprofit, through my writing, through the training and and coaching that I provide to churches and organizations um, that I uh, really uh, not just encourage and inspire people to do that, but really provide them practical tools uh, of, of how to do that and how we can really make people priority in our lives and not stuff and things. Um, and I think that really is, is the kingdom of God at work against this kingdom of empire in which America is, is one example of, of it. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I encourage folks, and we'll link that to listen to your podcast, like, because the second season, you talk a lot about yes. mentoring and mentoring generations and mentoring across cultures. And it's very, very good because your mentors don't have to look and act like you. In fact, it might be better if, if they don't. And I just think that's, that's a powerful part of your message as well. So one other thing I want to ask you about, and this is a long, I, I just, um, as a mom, and I'm just being somebody that is in the majority, mm -hmm. I'm white, upper class, I could have the privilege just to stay in that bubble. But as a mom of two daughters, like you have a daughter also, but yeah. what, moving forward in this, in wanting reconciliation and repair and raising our daughters, like how, talk to me as a white privileged person, how to do that with daughters in this world. How old and are your daughters? My, I have a 10 year old and a 17 year old. And I've, we've had to start, we've started being intentional about this, but it's not necessarily easy. Doesn't that mean it should be, but I'm just, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from you. Just what are some things moving forward, yeah. being an example and doing this with them? Yeah. So um, number one, I, I meant to mention this earlier, uh, kind of in the flow of things, but the fact your willingness to go and submit to the leadership of an African American pastor is significant. Mm -hmm. um, it says a lot to your children um, with your actions and not just your words. Um, and uh, how you engage that conversation when you leave is also equally accurate because even though you know we may worship different, that doesn't always or necessarily mean that someone else is right or someone else is wrong. 
right? It's just different. And so um, it, I just think of the ways I, of the places I take my daughter to and how we show up in places. So we can go to like a small church where it's only, you know, 12 people worshiping a certain way and it can go to a big arena. Like I remember when I took her to the International Justice Mission uh, Global prayer gathering, whatever. And so I remember it was like a period of a week where she had like three different um, experiences of people worshiping the Lord. And, mm-hmm. and they were, they were drastic. And she was just saying like, mom, like, this is, this is the church, right? And she said, and there's someone else in another part, you know, the country, another mm-hmm. world worshiping God in this way and that way. And so um, I'm like, yes, that's it. So I just think anytime we can expose our children um, to the vast ways that God is at work, and we can do that without fear, um, is a blessing and a gift and a benefit to them to be more thoughtful, engaged, empathetic, compassionate, um, intentional humans, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's a part of it. Um, you know, being intentional in what we read and what we expose them to. So in the same way that um, I'm going to be intentional in taking my daughter to see the Mr. Rogers movie next week. I also took her to see the Harriet Tubman movie, you know, two weeks ago. Yes. I'm also took her to see Just Mercy at Christmas. And that's going to become an experience, but it's also going to become a conversation, right? It's the same way with the, the books that she, that we read together or that she reads and I ask her about at school or that I read and I'm sharing with her. Um, but then my, my husband and I, and my friends, like we have all these very layered, um, difficult conversations in front of her. I mean, my daughter is 12 now. And okay. so I want her to be a thoughtfully engaged um, human. And so um, yeah, at this point, like all kinds of conversations we're having just right in front of her. And so she's able to listen and, and process and ask questions and all of that. Um, so yeah, I think all those things are very, very important. Like who you put in front of them, um, who you allow them to to listen to, to engage with, um, and and the experiences that you offer are all critically important. Yeah, I think you're right, and I appreciate just that, just the encouragement from you with that. And I think we really do have to be intentional. I mean, on both sides, really, like you are with your daughter as well, mm-hmm. and as Christians. I believe that we need need to be just like you. And one of the things I want to, you're like I said, I I highlighted so much of your book. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, what which quote do I even want to read? Because there's just so many. But along those same lines, one thing that spoke to me, you said being in the minority is not a normal experience for white people in the U.S. But taking them. Um lower position or positioning oneself as a minority in a certain space can go a long way in the healing, reconciliation, and redemptive process. So can you just end on talking about that to me as a white, just have some honest conversation with me as a white woman about taking a lower position? Yes. And, and I, and I think, um, I'm glad you brought it up because I I, I say this often and I I think it's appropriate to stay here because it goes back to your question of me before, like, why do white people need to do this? I said, you know, again, I suppose if you're not a Christian, I wouldn't expect you to, Um, but but if you are, um, then I would say that piece that we just named, um, and I would take it a step further, I would say submitting to the leadership of people of color. Um, supporting financially and with resources and networks and opportunity, people of color, organizations that are led by people of color. I would say um, um, 
you know, allowing people of color to be your teachers, whether that's, you know, you're buying their books and you're doing that in a small group, or like you say, having me on something like this, like those things are critically important. Why? It doesn't, it's not about helping people of color, giving them a leg up. It really is a matter of your spiritual formation. Mm. That's what it is. It's good. And so there are things, there are blind spots that are there that you will never see if you don't do those things. Yeah. For every person um, that identifies as white, that has made significant impact in these issues of injustices or um, what I would call biblical justice issues, um, they have all done that to some degree. If you look at their backstory, and so until you are able to do that, um, you're not going to have that impact, um, certainly not on a national level. But again, let's talk about just what's happening in your own home, in your own family, in your own church, in your own community. If you want to be a person of integrity, then you, you show that not just with your words, but with your consistent actions. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, Natasha. You you have spoken so much into me this conversation i've been so blessed by it and i just appreciate your honesty transparency your boldness to speak the truth mm-hmm. um i just thank you so much so tell me where tell me where you can be found i know yeah. we need to wrap up or i'll keep talking to you all afternoon um <laughs> i gotta let you get on with all your other responsibilities so so because you do have a blog and we will yes. link up your books you're the author of three books mentor for life a bible study uh, that's called Hope for Us, and then the book we've talked about today, A, Sojour- a Sojourner's Truth, which I love the mm-hmm. title, the double Thank meaning of that title, but that's another that's another story that we'll need to link up if people don't know that one. Um, and so tell me where we can be found, and we'll link everything up on your show notes. Yes, yeah, so um, you can find me on my uh, my website, Natasha S as in Sistrunk or Sam Robinson.com, um, N-A-T-A-S-H-A-S-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N.com. And so from there, you can link to the podcast. You can link to the blog, which I'm going to update in the new year. You can link to all the social media platforms. That's the way you can go to find um, the book resources. All those things are linked up there. And if you're wanting to invite me to provide um, training or speaking or consulting or anything like that, all the information is available on the website. So that's your gate to everything else. Okay, that's perfect. We'll link all that up. And I just thank you again just for sharing your heart and your voice today, Natasha. Thank you, Antonia. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining me in this space today and listening to Natasha's story. I hope her story spoke to you in your own journey and has encouraged you to take a deeper look at the influences in your own life. I know for me, Natasha's vulnerability and honesty has really challenged me to seek out and listen to more stories that don't look like my own and enter into more diverse spaces where I can learn from the experiences of others. I encourage you to check out Natasha's book and website. She has some great resources for mentoring and leadership. As always, I'll link up her website and my website, herstoryspeaks.com. Also, a special thanks to those of you who left reviews for the podcast on iTunes. The positive feedback is such an encouragement to me to continue this ministry of sharing women's stories. The more reviews a podcast has, the greater visibility it has for others to find it on iTunes. 